Welcome to Unspoken, the podcast that highlights experiences that are all too common but very rarely discussed. I am Dr. Cloda Campbell, the wellness psychologist, and I feel very passionately about speaking the unspoken to remove the taboo and shame that so often surrounds our experiences and internal worlds. For each episode of Unspoken, I am joined by someone who would like to uncover their unspoken with us in order to help themselves, but also in order to help others. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode and that you take something from it. Little Light is an Irish jewellery brand founded by sisters who, through their own difficult experiences, realised that life is full of ups and downs and that it is really important to honour our whole stories, not just certain chapters. Each piece of Little Light jewellery comes with a poem to evoke emotion. These poems are composed about topics such as friendship, love and adventure, but also thoughtfully include the unexpected challenges of loss, hurt and heartache. Little Light believes that it's important to give each other the space and grace to move through our pain, as it's only in our deepest acceptance of what is that we can begin to start the ongoing process of healing. Little Light is the perfect gift for yourself or for your loved one. Evoke emotion with your gift giving with Little Light and use code UNSPOKEN for 15% off site-wide. Today I'm joined by Donal Skeen, who has very bravely agreed to share his Unspoken with us. Donal is one of Ireland's favourite food writers and TV personalities and he is known for his bubbly personality and down-to-earth nature. But beneath the surface, despite all of his success, Donal battles with feeling good enough and deserving of all of his achievements. Today's conversation is a joy. It's one you're going to absolutely love and you will leave an even bigger fan of Donal than you already were. Donal, welcome to Unspoken. Thank you for having me. How exciting. Well, I am delighted to have you. Thank you so much for being so brave to come on. Do I need to be brave to come on? Oh, no. <laughs> what are we going to do? What are we trying to talk about? <laughs> you know, I'd actually love to begin by you taking us back to the very start and what life was like for you growing up. Yeah, well, it, it's I suppose in the career I've chosen, I was always... I suppose, involved in food in some way or another. My my mum and dad um, work in the food business and my dad, back in the day, he hates when I say I'm a, he was a fruit and veg man, but he was a fruit and veg man and he used to deliver sacks of potatoes into the hotels. And, you know, so I always remember doing my homework at the kitchen table and he would, he would always go into work very early. So at about four o'clock in the morning, so he could go into the markets and then get back to the factory. And by the time yeah, he was kind of finished for the day, it was about three o'clock and we'd be back doing our homework around the table, but he'd be putting in orders for punnets of strawberries. And I always like, it sounded like this kind of thing he used to just roll through. So we all slag him that he's, <laughs> we still did five punnets of strawberries, two, two kilos of potatoes. It just sounds like this mantra he used to go through at about three o'clock while we were all trying to do our homework around the kitchen table. So I definitely kind of grew up around food. Um, my mom was a great cook and my aunt is a great cook. She's a food stylist. And so I was involved in that way. But for me growing up, um, food was just always a, a passion. It was something that I really enjoyed doing. I loved cooking. It wasn't ever something I thought I'd make a career in. Um, but from that perspective, it was something that I, I always enjoyed. I always really kind of, it was, a, it was an out for me. And growing up, 
um, my mom was always encouraging of that. Like, you know, I think most mothers probably didn't want kids to make a mess. And I can tell you that now having a three and a five year old, I definitely don't want the kids too much in the kitchen with me. For, firstly, for peace of mind and secondly, for the cleanup. So um, she was very brave back then to be encouraging us into the kitchen. And um, yeah, it stood it stood to me. I, I feel like all these memories are food related. But yes, that is the truth. It's definitely something that was clear from a very, very early age. I was going to say, it sounds like you're very comfortable talking about food and when we go back to your childhood it's all food based as well who is the donal you know when you strip yourself back and you really put the food to the side for a moment um the the donal growing up was quite a I suppose I was confident in one way and then I was really quiet on another side and I was quite I suppose uh, introspective and I loved art and I loved drawing and um I probably wouldn't have had the confidence and I certainly remember like I see it now with my boys where like you have to go into a situation and there's you know loads of kids running around I was definitely not the one running around and screaming I was the one kind of hanging on to the side of my mum and I definitely wasn't confident in those early years I think the confidence only kind of came I'm still working on it but like it came later in life and I think in those early years um I definitely wasn't the loud kind of out there and that that's I suppose that kind of did come much more in my teen years um where I kind of I don't know I found that that new persona and you know there was this other side but I definitely I remember kind of till I was about four or five like always being quite quiet and and I remember getting glasses at an early stage as well I got glasses when I was about seven or eight and I remember very specifically it kind of changing it definitely took a bit of confidence away because I had glasses which is ridiculous but I blame my mom because she got me these um I probably chose them myself but she uh she agreed to me getting these Nintendo glasses which were all like <laughs> multicolored rainbow but they had this like bridge across the eyebrows <laughs> so I kind of looked like a 1970s I don't know, weird person. And so had these glasses for the first couple of years of, of glasses wearing. And um, it definitely, I think it, it turned me from being kind of, you know, a, a, a kind of happy-go-lucky kid into this kind of glasses wearing child. And um, it, it definitely kind of had an impact on your persona. So, so yeah, I think in those early, early years that, that kind of trying to find confidence and maybe that search of confidence came from not being like super cool and not being, you know what I mean? It kind of grew and developed from there. But I certainly remember kind of as a kid being really interested in specific sort of activities and project-based things and I I loved kind of I loved drawing I was I was always drawing I would be stopping if you were if we were watching TV I would be stopping and pausing things and drawing like cartoon characters and things like that so I suppose there was a bit of creativity even back then. When I think of my kids I can see little things that knock their confidence. They're six and three, so mm. very similar ages to your two boys. Yeah, yeah. What were the things that had you second guessing yourself? And when you say that you had to build that confidence over your teenage years. It's funny because like, uh, oh God, I, I only had this conversation very in, in a true, uh, we were living in Los Angeles for a while, uh, which everyone's likes me about I, that I obviously never mentioned, but I mentioned all the time. Um, but <laughs> I um, I had this conversation in one of those kind of voodoo-y sort of, you know, I've gone to a reflexologist and then all of a sudden like you're talking about your childhood and, you know, these little moments. And actually that glasses thing came up. I don't think I've thought about it in years. And all of a sudden, like I do remember being kind of very, very kind of uh, part of the group and all this sort of crack and then I kind of got glasses and it definitely changed my persona and it definitely had an impact on my confidence and I know that sounds 
ridiculous, but like these are the things that happen as a child. And, you know, looking back, you can kind of see those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was minor in some ways, but then major in another because it definitely changed you from, you know, being this this confident kind of young shirt to having to deal with wearing glasses. And I know that's kind of silly in retrospect, but as a kid, that's a big moment and it's a big change of like, this is who you are now. You're the one wearing glasses. Um, but I think from that perspective, it was a bit of a change. And, and I suppose because of that, you maybe that's where that kind of stemmed from, of, of kind of building this confidence because you were aware. Does that does that even make sense? I don't even, <laughs> I'm saying this and going, is this absolute nonsense or is this? But yeah, I do remember it as a very specific moment of kind of a change from being, you know, very much kind of, but I was always the joker. I suppose I was always the joker um, in friend groups and I always had nice friend groups. Um, and in, in that in that sense, I suppose, like it, it wasn't for want of being bullied or it wasn't, you know, there wasn't that side of it, but it certainly changes you. And, and I think when you're that age, like those are big kind of milestones and big chapters. And, you know, some, it's amazing. I, I hear stories of like friends and family who, who talk about the thing that kind of changed something for them. And it's often as small as that, that can kind of steer you in a completely di- different direction and kind of can, can have an impact on your, you know, your whole persona. So I definitely... I, as, as trivial as it kind of sounds, as even as I'm talking about it, I do remember it being something that was quite like significant. And only in retrospect do I realize that, you know, um, and it definitely kind of had an impact of me not being kind of feeling like I was the cool kid because I was wearing glasses. And um, if you'd seen those Nintendo glasses, you'd definitely understand. <laughs> you know, I think what it is, is it can be that sense of difference, you know, yeah being single day to have to go get the eye test have to maybe go to a couple of appointments come back into your class and show up with this new thing um so I can relate to that and things stand out from my childhood that bring up a similar feeling for me yeah when you talk about having to build your confidence or being the quieter shyer little boy what I think of is how bubbly you are now and even at the start of your career how you were into music in pop bands how did Mm. you go from this little boy hanging onto his mum's leg to putting yourself up for these really scary um, situations and the auditions and how did you fall Mm. into that industry I think by the time I'd kind of reached secondary school, that confidence had much had, had kind of built and I'd had a very clear version of who I was. And, you know, I, and the interest as well, the interest had definitely kind of grown at that stage. I was really into music. I was into performing. I was, I love that aspect of, of, um, of school. And anytime there was a, there was a school play, I'd, I would audition or I'd be fascinated or I'd be really interested in all the aspects of that. So I was always, um, I think I did Fiddler on the Roof and I did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And um, I always, always had um I, and, and actually in, in retrospect those were the things that kind of built a lot of confidence if I think back you know because I think something like I performed in Fiddler on the Roof and like had I think I had one line and one song and that was it but like the confidence and that feeling of performing in front of people that was a real moment of like okay no I really enjoy this and there was great kind of you know there was great buzz to it and also the, you know, the the actual kind of, you know, because performing is the one side of it, but the actual kind of rehearsing with people, do it's a project, it's a team. And I love that aspect of it. And I think, you know, I saw that very early on when I was in school. Um, and I suppose in lots of ways, by the time I left school, I had kind of 
got that baseline of confidence and I, I kind of, I had a bit of, you know, I had a bit of, I suppose, <laughs> self-confidence enough to kind of go and look at those things. And I had, to, I'd left school and gone straight into a media studies course and I knew I, I was not ready for college. I probably should have taken a gap year or something like that, but um, I was not ready to go back into exams. And so the minute I saw um, an audition in London, I was like, right, I'm going for that. I'm going to try. And, you know, like there was this other, I always kind of saw that there was this other aspect of life that you could kind of, you could go and, and explore. And I think in lots of ways, that traditional route was never going to be for me. And I just didn't know it. And I think lots, you know, when I see, I think I'm probably the worst person you can have speak at a school because I'm like, you know, the exams mean nothing. You can do all sorts of things. You don't have to do this. You can try that. And I think, you know, in lots of ways, I've come, I've come around in, in the career I do, like has come, come about after a number of different kind of routes. And it's not never been plain sailing, but I think, you know, in those later years in school, I certainly developed that baseline of confidence that that want that gave that sort of or that saw that need and that want for something bigger and something exciting and that buzz. So I do think there there was something that kind of built around that time, certainly in in the later years of school. So how did you enter into the music industry? What was your kind of first step into it? Well, I became uh, very interested in a newspaper called The Stage, which um, I don't know if, if it's even still going, but it was the place for um, auditions. And if you wanted, it was a London-based newspaper, but all the auditions came through that were for pop bands, for musical theatre, for like, um, I think they used to do cruise, like if you wanted to be an entertainer on a cruise, this this is where you would audition. So I used to see this online and I would look at different auditions and um there was one that came up and I auditioned in London for this boy band uh, called Streetwise with a Z. That's how cool they were. And uh, <laughs> and I, I auditioned and um, got the part. And um, and all of a sudden I was like wrapped up into this world. And like to my parents at the time, it was like the equivalent of joining the circus because there was no studies. There was no end goal. There was no, you know, this could have fizzled out. They didn't know what I was signing myself up for. And neither did I, but it was exciting. And, you know, the potential was global stardom and, you know, multi-millions and the whole nine yards. And um, interestingly enough, like uh, that band went on and we kind of, it went on for years and there were, well, I say years, but about two years basically back and forth with different members and different auditions. And it all kind of came to a head when we auditioned for Lou Pearlman, who was uh, NSYNC and Backstreet, the manager of NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. So we auditioned for him and he uh, he decided we all we all got up and sang individually, and he went right. I'll have him, 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 and not him, and not him, and not him. And so um, they, he actually ended up taking one of the boy band members, and he was to stay because he wanted to use him as part of another group. And then we all got sent home like oh. absolute egypts. And so oh, no. we were like we were sent home. And I do remember kind of like that was the build up was this big moment that we were going to audition for Lou Perlman, and that was that was going to be the start of everything. And of course it wasn't. And that that really was that first moment of um, rejection and that kind of that first feeling of like, oh, Jesus, like, what do we do now? And there was always that feeling of like, you know, if this doesn't work, what do we do now? And because I had given up like my college in lots of ways, even then I had 
completed my first year of college and I had made sure to do my exams because I've always been a big believer of always having something else on the boil just in case it all goes to pot. And, you know, that was a perfect example of it. Like I had spent this year in this band. I dropped out of college. I'd gone off and done this. And we went to this fantastic, huge opportunity and then it didn't go our way. And I got sent home and I, I remember kind of going, what's next? Like, what do I do from here? And it really was a moment of like, I've committed this, but then like, it's like, I think back and it's so hilarious because like you're 17 or 18 and you have your whole life ahead of you. But at that time it's crushing and it's really hard to kind of envisage what the future is. And also like, I, if I can go back and tell my 17 or 18 year old self that like, it's going to be grand. Like it's, you know, but I do remember that real angst over what do we do next and how do I kind of, and also like you've told all these people, your friends and family that you've gone off to do this and then that you've committed your, your, you know, your next six, seven, 12 months to, and then it doesn't work out. So like you then have to kind of swallow your pride, go back. And I remember like, just, yeah, I go back and get, I got a, a job in a, in a restaurant and, you know, I was working uh, the tables and like, but it was this whole thing. Oh, like, oh, he's gone off to do this. And like the, the story had to change then. And we had come back and I was no longer going to do that. And so I was working in a restaurant for a while and then, um, I got this uh, job in a music TV station uh, called Bubble Hits at the time. And again, it was kind of inter interlinked with what I was doing, but I was always very driven. So I think, you know, even in moments of sort of angst and unknowing, I was always quite good at kind of picking myself up and going, what's next? Now that doesn't, that's not without like tears and, you know, going an absolute agony of like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? But I have been pretty good at like picking myself up and, and going again, you know? And I can really hear that the, the thought of what next, but before that thought even came, what was it like in that moment to experience that crushing rejection? Do you know, it's funny because, I actually felt because I was so good friends with um, Lee, who was our bandmate in uh, actually in the band, that boy band. And then he subsequently was a, uh, the member of the the other band, which we had a little bit more success with. Um, so I, I was always really good friends with Lee. So I actually felt very proud of him, number one. And like, I think part of me would have like, but I, I always knew I didn't have the best voice. So I was kind of, <laughs> so I think secretly I, I was kind of aware that I might get like rumbled while I was auditioning for one of the biggest music uh, managers ever. So, you know, I think it, it wasn't a huge surprise, but then I did feel, I, w I suppose I've always been a big believer in other people and, you know, and, and being in a situation where if some, at least one of us will thrive in a scenario like that. But I do think, you know, if I think back to kind of like when all the doors are closed and I'm sat in the room going, Oh my God, what's that? I think that probably is the honest answer. And that's where it really was tough. And I think at a very young age, it can be really hard because like I can sit here now with, you know, a career behind me and, you know, uh, but when you haven't got that and when you haven't got those opportunities and you haven't tasted that, it's a really scary place because you either kind of go, OK, I'm just going to give this up or I'm going to keep going. And, you know, in, in some ways, I was always quite realistic about things and I was always quite honest with myself and kind of saying, like, if this doesn't work out, we need to have a backup plan and we need to do something else. And um, I think once I'd kind of got past the upset and the sort of 
angst that came with being rejected at that stage it was kind of like okay well and, and again you're at a you know 17 or 18 is a lovely time because as much as you're feeling those feelings like you do have so much opportunity and you do have so many different avenues which you, which you can explore at that point because you haven't kind of gone down like I you know I, I do what I do now but like if I was to tell you I'm going off to do the Eurovision I'd, pro I'd probably get people killing me because <laughs> it was like we've you've just finally got yourself a, a, a serious career but like don't you know don't get distracted but I think there is that kind of element of like there's there's a whole wide world at that age and it's it's a really great place to be so I would say that you know once I'd gotten past that I was very hungry again and very ang uh, not anxious but a very kind of driven to kind of go what's next and I'm excited once that was done it kind of was the building blocks and, and I think in lots of ways over the years those rejections have always turned into the building blocks of what's next. And I, I, I like to think that's that's maybe a, a little superhero power that I have, the ability to kind of go, okay, that didn't work, but let's try something else and let's try. Now that we've learned about how to do that and how to do it wrong, let's see what's next. Fail better, fail better. I think that's what my, my ethos tends to be. And in any of those moments that you, as you think back on them with those rejections, did it ever make you question yourself? Yeah, of course. Of course. Like I was a, I was a pop singer who could kind of do backing vocals, not really uh, <laughs> not lead singer stuff. And I'm not being humble there. I'm being honest with you. Like I, I knew, you know, like we had, I was in the band with people who had feckin' amazing voices and I, I can sing, but I'm not, I'm, I'm probably the, uh, I'm probably the Howard in Take That um, rather than the Gary Barlow. Um, <laughs> so I always knew going into this, this is what, you know, this was, I, I had all the ability to kind of bring the project together and, and in lots of ways, because that was my skill, you know, I was very good at like the marketing aspect of a band and the, the opportunities and looking at the songs and bringing the project together. That was what my skill set was in, in the band. And I, you know, the, the really talented singer, he probably wasn't very good at that, but I was. And I suppose that gave me my part to play. And in lots of ways, the I do remember that kind of not feeling good enough to be doing this but then I would in my head justify the fact that my place was there because I was I had the ability to create these opportunities and I think very early on I understood that and very early on I kind of had a, an ownership of that that made me feel confident in where I was. Do you remember the moment was there a moment where you had to give up you had to give up on that dream of that pop band success and the millions and the fame and everything else that I'm sure you were dreaming about in those days? It definitely was that early experience with the boy band that that happened with, because I think I, as time went on, I kind of protected myself better in any of the further experiences that I would have had. But in that early stage, there was a real crash moment of like, okay, this has all been for nothing. And now I need to find a whole other life because I've spent two years doing this and it hasn't worked. And, you know, I remember I kind of, I think I left the band in spring and had that real moment of like, God, what the hell am I going to do next? And I got a job in the local area. I was working in, a, I was working in a restaurant and I was waiting tables and, but it, funny enough, like in, in no point did, at no point did I kind of think, Oh God, it's all gone. It's all been for nothing. And it's all been to fail. Like I loved that job and, and I really enjoyed the experience. And, you know, I have this one experience in that job where, um, I was annoyingly personable and, uh, charismatic and, uh, <laughs> I would go out of my way to make sure the customers were having a good time and I'd always be full of chat. And, you know, um, I remember there was this one couple and they 
gave me this ridiculous tip and they were like, now we're only giving you this tip because we are NLP trainers and we've never seen someone with the natural kind of streak for it. And NLP is this neuro-linguistic programming and I'd never heard of it before, but it's all about kind of, it's all about goal setting. It's all about how you communicate and it's all about how you have these different accessing cues and when you speak to someone. And so it was fascinating. And I remember going and getting the book and kind of thinking, this is, I, I was a big believer in, you know, the universe and the secret around all that sort of stuff around that time. And this couple gave me this, this 20 quid to go and buy a book and I went and bought it. And it was really kind of instrumental in making myself kind of have a clear vision of where I was going. And I think very much at that stage, the fact that someone had given me the money to go and buy this book was very much like part of the pro- part of the universe telling me to, to do all the right things. So I think from that experience, I was like, okay, no, there's, path, there's a path here. And I think in lots of ways, you know, you, you look at the, that whole secret moment and, you know, that whole, uh, that, that, that kind of surge of people's interest in it. But I think I am a big believer that, you know, you can, ha- you can put stuff out to the universe. You can, you know, have visions and all that sort of stuff, but you have to put the work in. And I do believe that you have to put, put the work in driving forward. So I think from that experience of, of finding a job, I then went and got, uh, I went and did uh, a presenting course. I got that job in bubble hits in the music TV station. And so all of the things were always part of like kind of putting the building blocks into the next stages of where I was going. And I was a big believer of kind of being goal driven and um, listing out the dream. And they, there's a thing in NLP they talk about, which are huge, unbelievably great goals, hugs. And if they, if you, if you achieve them, they will blow your mind. So you, you write down your list of those things. And, you know, very early on in that kind of those goals setting that, that I was able to achieve one or two of them. And I was like, oh my God, this is real. This is something that can happen. When actually it's just, it, it, you know, in retrospect, a lot of it is hard work and it, a lot of it is, pinpointing where you want to go and working your way towards it. And I think that has really, has always stood to me ever since I I read about that. The career or the, I suppose, where you are now as this person that you're a household name, you know, from mums and dads right down to kids in school, you're so well known. You have a massive following on Instagram, on your YouTube. You have your finger in so many pies between your books and your TV shows. How did you get from that restaurant with that NLP couple to the fame and notoriety that you have now? Um, it took a while. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> took a while. Um, and through many, many more of those stages where you're going to try something and then it doesn't work and then it doesn't work the way you thought it was going to work and then you have to try again. And, you know, even 11, I'm this, uh, this, I've just released my 11th cookbook and I'm still kind of going, oh, did we do this right thing? And should we do, you know, so I'm always tweaking. I'm always learning. I'm always failing. And I'm, you know, fa- learning from that failure and then trying to reapply. But that's life. And, you know, I think what's been really interesting enjoyable in the process is that, you know, like I said from the start, I love project-based, you know, I love project-based work and I love the idea of coming up with a concept and seeing it through to fruition. And from that perspective, I think that's been what I've been doing for essentially for the last 12 or 13 years across the TV shows and the books. And they're all about taking an idea and fleshing it out and then bringing it to fruition. And, you know, the TV show is a perfect example of it. The books are a perfect example of it. They all have, they're all multifaceted and they all have a lot of work that goes into them. And then they have these, this great moment where there's a payoff and there's, and I've always in, I think in retrospect from the band years where it was this kind of endless thing of like, you might get an opportunity and you might get this and you might, this might work. 
I had control on these projects and the books and the shows. And from that perspective, I had so much more enjoyment because of that control. And I had an understanding of that I could that I could put something out there and I could see it through. And I think in lots of ways when we were in the band and I was quite young, we always had someone who was going to say, you can't do that or we don't want to do it like this. Or And in lots of ways, that control has been a really enjoyable process because it means that I, I can see something from, from the start to finish and, and enjoy the process as well. So I can hear that you took the reins and you were like, I'm going to do this my way and I'm going to be successful at it and I'm not going to let other people hold me back anymore. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of that for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've read up a lot um, the last couple of weeks in anticipation for us chatting today and I've listened to other conversations you've had with people and what really stands out to me is how hard you work and your drive and your ambition like I mean it's incredible and when I think about that in my own life the thing that really drives me and anyone who knows my story will know this it it, it comes from that place of never feeling good enough never feeling worthy Where does mm. your drive and ambition come from? Because it, it it's exhausting, isn't it? To keep pushing yourself in that way. Now you're asking the hard questions, Claudia. <laughs> now we're getting to the crux of it. Um, it's a really good question. And, you know, I think, oh, like if you, if you asked me it probably seven or eight years ago, I probably wouldn't have had an answer very clearly and and not that I specifically know what I'm going to say next but I think it does probably come from I certainly grew up in a family that had to work for what we got and you know I I think my mum and dad I they they were business owners and you know they ran their own business and because of that like I saw every weekend having my dad might have to go back into work because something something broke or something, you know, he had to fix a machine or he had to go and, you know, deliver an order because someone went out sick. When we'd go on holidays, I remember specifically, you know, when we were about seven or eight and we went on holidays and he, we would go to the little village because there was a payphone there so he could ring back to work to see, to make sure everything was working. And there was always this, this life on one side and work was always so clearly a part of that process to have life. And so because of that, I I grew up with it and it was kind of all I knew. And I, you know, I I laugh because I think I probably would have said back in the day, I'm never going to have a job like that. And of course I'm in a job now that like is completely consuming and, you know, never switches off, you know, especially with social media now, like every, uh, you know, I was only having a conversation uh, with our team here about making sure we had posts to go up on Saturday and Sunday and, you know, da, 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 da. so, it, you know, there is that thing of working for yourself that especially if you've grown up with, you know, a family business, that is definitely something that has just always been part of of why. And I suppose in lots of ways, getting to the crux of the question is why I do it. And, and I think I'm always looking for that kind of that moment of like, oh, God, we've done it now. But I definitely think there is moments where I've had to learn to kind of step back and go, everything's okay right now and remind myself that everything is okay right now because I do get to a point where it gets frantic. And, you know, we were actually just coming off the back of like the book's been released and the TV show's been released and we have to do all this press around it. 
in amongst all the day-to-day stuff that we are already doing. And so it adds, it stacks up this level of stress. And it's particularly since having children that just, that stacks up even more because there isn't a break from, like I think before my solution to like having those moments where it was frantic would have been to kind of like take a weekend and just sit in bed and not do anything. But you know, with kids, you don't have that opportunity. I heard a conversation recently with the founder of Airbnb and he said that he pushes himself and I really related to this he pushes himself to receive that validation and he said and this is something that I certainly feel within myself that he's never reached that he's never reached that place and I've heard that echoed in what you just said I've Mm. never reached that place where I've actually arrived there where I feel yes I'm worthy now I'm successful enough now I have enough followers or enough success within my business I could hear Mm. you say that too does that resonate with you it does and I think like on one side I would say yes there's been so many things I've got to achieve and I've got the opportunity to to experience but I don't know that if you if you remove that and you just sit and say that's okay in my head that that kind of I don't know that it's in me to do that. Like some part of me is always searching for that next thing. And I I absolutely probably need to do some work on figure out <laughs> where that comes from and why. But, uh, you know, I, I on the flip side of it, I really enjoy exploring and, un- and, and you know, developing and, and, and kind of finding out how to do something like even now, like I'm on, I'm doing this morning and I got an opportunity to go to Texas and I'm kind of going, okay. And then, and then I'm going, am I going to host the show next? Like, is it like, and in lots of ways, you're right. There has to be a point where like, I need to be okay with just that. And, you know, and, and I suppose be, be comfortable with that. But I suppose what I'm trying to circle around here is that on one side, I will always want that hunger for more in a way to kind of satisfy that itch of being productive. But on another side where I'm saying I'm exhausted, I need to find that place where I am okay with where we are at. And, you know, I'm very happy with what I've achieved. And I am like, there's, there's a genuine side to me that is so proud of the achievements. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of moments where like, I kind of thought I could never get to this or like, I, I mean, a perfect example for me is, getting to host Saturday Kitchen on BBC One. I was doing it regularly there while I was in living in Los Angeles and coming back and forth to, to do it to London. And like, I was live on BBC One. Someone had trusted me to host a show with Michelin star chefs, celebrity guests, and, you know, nearly two or three million people watching. And they'd asked this fella who basically started a food blog and also was a wannabe pop star and basically... <laughs> had no you know hadn't the sort of you know what the traditional route of that that sort of job would be and yet they'd handed me the keys to the castle and I was allowed to do it and and I'd like to think I was not actually pretty good at it too and you know that for me was a real moment of like okay I can do this and I know I can do this and I know that people believe in me to do this and you know I do remember that as a specific moment of like that was I had reached a place where I was very comfortable with what i do and how I do it. And I think to the point where, you know, you talk about imposter syndrome and you'd always have these, you know, you'd have critics who, who would kind of come and say something negative on social media or, or, you know, wherever. 
And you'd always kind of go, God, if, if they say that loud enough, if they say it so that everybody hears some, you know, they're going to be able to take this away from you. And in lots of ways, even that Saturday Kitchen, that BBC One moment felt to me like, I've done this now. Like you can't, any, anyone who says anything negative here, I know what I do and I know I'm good at it. And to the point where someone's given me the opportunity to do it on such a large scale, I think you kind of, it silences that voice inside you and it silences, you know, whether that's a critic saying it vocally out there or it's the one kind of little voice in your head in lots of ways experiencing that even doing like this morning and you know having experienced many of the shows I've done on you know US television as well they all kind of led to that kind of silencing of of the inner and outer critic and the kind of the confidence like I'm 37 now and I certainly don't have the fear and anxiety around the career I have that I or that I had when I was like 25 26 because I always felt that like uh, you know, I hadn't come down the route of being a chef. I hadn't come down the route of, you know, being trained. I, I came to this because of a love of food. And I think that's what has, funnily enough, has been the thing that has stood to me. But I think in lots of ways, those those larger kind of experiences were ones that validated what I did. And in lots of ways, you know, made me feel more secure in what I did and, and confident in what I did. Um, but I think, the, going back to your larger question is that like why I don't I, I don't know that it's ever something that will disappear in me I will always be hungry but I think I've probably got to a place in life where you know if I don't get something or if I fail or you know it's not as crushing as it might have been when I was younger because I've managed to and I've had those opportunities and I've achieved things and you know I, I think that in itself has kind of made me feel more comfortable. I will always be hungry for what's next, but I'm certainly not as, I suppose, as desperate for it as as I, as I may have been once. Um, and I kind of, I do find a, a point where I am enjoying where I'm at and I'm very happy where I'm at. Um, but I think it's in me. It's It's part of the fabric. It's what I've grown up with and it'll always be there. And maybe that's something I need to work on, but I have certainly got better at, 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 taking a breath and and looking and being able to see the wood for the trees i say that having experienced the last couple of months but but i you know i will stand in the, in a, co- a couple of weeks time and go what a year it's been how amazing like this is wonderful and yeah appreciate it you touched on something there that i think everyone listening will relate to that imposter syndrome and that inner critic that can be so present for so many of us can you remember a time in your life where that was particularly loud? Very much at the early stages of food writing. Um, I had started a food blog in 2007 and I started it because I loved food and I loved cooking and I loved everything that came along with it. I was a, a you know passionate reader of cookbooks. I was a collecting cookbooks from like people would give me cookbooks for my birthday um, when I was, I think, 10 or 11 and onwards because it was just something I loved. And my granny gave me these amazing cookbooks. My aunts would give me cookbooks. And so I was a real passionate, you know, cook off the basis of that. And, you know, when I started a food blog, I never could have imagined where it would have all led. I mean, I would have had a dream. It would have been wonderful to write a cookbook and that would be a thing. But but certainly wouldn't have ever envisaged that starting a food blog would lead me there. And, you know, it's been an interest because I remember in the early stages, especially I think the first line of my television show um, that aired on RT, the very first one was the line, I'm not a chef, I'm a home cook. And I remember that kind of 
almost being the thing that that I got beaten with, like, because people would say, well, he's not a chef. He's, why is he doing this? Like, why, like, you know, and there was that kind of very rigid version of what you, you know, to, to talk about food, you had to be a chef. And that was a very rigid kind of belief back then. But you had Delia Smith, you had Nigel Slater, you had Nigella, you had all these people who, before me, who had, who had never been, you know, really working in a restaurant properly, or, you know, had, had come from a different place, had come to kind of writing recipes from a different place that wasn't from a restaurant. And I think, you know, in retrospect, now that is something that I really truly believe is is my selling point is the fact that I'm not I'm I'm always the hero of the home cook and it is always to kind of utilize what you have not your large list of larger ingredients that you've ordered in for you know catering for a large amount of people this is real cooking and this is real food and and I think in the early stages it was always that feeling of like I was being found out for not being a chef but actually that what you know it's taken until, you know, recent years to kind of shake that and kind of go, this is, I, I know very clearly who I write for. I write for home cooks. I'm not trying to run a restaurant. I'm not trying to do whatever it is. And I think that imposter syndrome, certainly in the early stages of writing a food blog and going from a food blog to a book, to a TV show, that that kind of three year window of that kind of all happening and getting accolades for it. Cause I, I won the, uh, I won best Irish food blog for the blog I was writing at the time. And it was all about blogs back then. Um, the blog went to a book and the book won an award. And then I had a TV show and I can imagine for, you know, a chef who's been, who's has, has dreamt of this. And like, I think this was the thing that like people felt like if you were a chef, you were, you were graduating up to your television show and this was the next step, but like very few people get the opportunity to do it. And, and I, I know how privileged I am to do it, but I know also that why I do it and is is why I've been given the opportunity. And, you know, the the, the recipes we choose for people to, to write, uh, to cook and to write are always ones that solve a problem. And I've always been very clear about that. And I think, you know, in lots of ways, that's why the books more, more recently do, do well, because I know who I'm speaking to, who I'm writing for. But I didn't back then. And I think I equally was like, well, God, I am not a chef. And, you know, should I be doing this? Like, should I be getting an opportunity where someone else isn't? And I think um, that imposter syndrome was definitely very clear back then to the point where I was, I was kind of going, you know, when, if a book didn't sell or, or a TV show didn't perform, I would kind of go like, is, is, am I doing the right thing? I am. And, and I think only in more recent years where I've kind of been very clear about what I do and who I write for has has everything kind of come 360 and everything feels more fluid and everything feels more purposeful but I think it you know in life it takes you moments to kind of I, and I, you know people talk about imposter syndrome as being a negative but or you know or even stress being a negative but sometimes I do feel having if I hadn't got that imposter syndrome perhaps I wouldn't be so sure of myself as smug as I am now no but like so sure of myself in the sense of like I know very clearly now because I've gone through that feeling of imposter syndrome because I've questioned you know should I be doing this and because of that I I know where I am and I suppose like at, at 37 I have a clear picture of why I do it and in lots of ways a lot of the anxiety around imposter syndrome have dis- has dissipated significantly because I have that clarity. And had I not had those feelings of imposter syndrome back in the early stages of my career, maybe I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have that confidence I have now. You know, when I think of that inner critic, I always wonder whose voice it is. So I think often it originates externally for us. Mm. Where did your inner critic 
come from was it present for you when you were younger because I imagine it didn't just come in 2007 hmm that's a very good question one I don't have a clear answer for because it like I can very easily identify like a negative comment I would have read when I started a food blog or you know but if I think even further back yes there's there's definitely been a voice that you know I think everyone grows up with when you fail at something or and, and that could be as simple as something ha- that happens in your childhood where like you don't win a race or you don't win a competition or something like that so I think that voice is my own I think it's probably always been my own and the you know while you might read something that's a negative comment you know <laughs> the amazing thing is like I think most negative comments you read the really hard-hitting ones are the ones that you you think you've thought of already that has already been in your head and you're going oh my god they can see me they can see my thoughts they know what I'm thinking and I think those are the really hard ones to read but in lots of ways I think you know it's back to my ideology and maybe this is a positive or negative but I do think you know I, I remember going to a talk and someone talked about the death whisper the the thing that people will talk about you when you leave the room and I think if you're not honest with yourself and you haven't kind of acknowledged what your death whisper is, it becomes something that kind of haunts you a little bit. And it becomes the thing that that kind of makes you nervous, that makes you maybe mess up. That, And if, you're, if you don't kind of acknowledge that, uh, it, it becomes that thing that just oh, looms over you. And I think I like to think that there's an honesty and an authenticity to what I do and how I approach things. And hopefully that is, that is, you know, why it's accessible in the way it is. And, you know, even in a conversation, like I I rarely have experiences in life where I'm not myself and, you know, I'm not honest, you know, there's certainly moments where I feel absolutely crap and then have to come and talk on a podcast. And, (laughs) but, but, you know, ultimately I think when you get, when it comes down to it, you're, you're going to have an honest conversation and that's, that's who I am. But, but I do think that death whisper, that understanding of that negativity is, is, and kind of acknowledgement is, is a really important one. Um, and ultimately that's where, you know, I think, I think you can fall over and really get caught up if you don't acknowledge that. So I think that voice, that death whisper in, in whisper in myself has always been my own voice. And I think, in some ways it's pushed me, it, it's knocked me, but it's also pushed me to to be stronger. Donald, thank you for being so open and so honest with us and sharing yourself in a way perhaps that people will be really interested in. I think when we show up and we're vulnerable, um, mm. people connect with that. And I know people will relate to many things that you've said today. So thank you for that. I really appreciate yeah, it. And thank you for al- allowing space for because it, it's funny with a lot of podcasts and radio shows, it's always like short seven minute segments. And, and actually, it's lovely to be able to have the conversation and unpack things. I, I maybe didn't know myself until just this moment. <laughs> so thank you very much. My conversation with Donald really reminded me of the countless times in my life that I did all I could to avoid rejection. And let me tell you, it has been exhausting. The constant trying to prove myself, the moulding myself into the person I thought they wanted me to be, the hypervigilance and the fear. For those of you who can relate, I'd love to share one of my favourite poems with you. I hope these words comfort and soothe you as they do me. In times of struggle, I often turn to poetry, and if you've ever attended one of my events, you will know the healing power of words and how transformative they can truly be. 
So listen now with an open heart and an open mind, and don't forget that these words will be here for you to return to whenever you may need them. She Let Go by Safira Rose She let go. Without a thought or a word, she let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of indecision within her. She let go of all the right reasons, wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry. She just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all the memories that held her back. She let go of all the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of all the planning and all of the calculations about how to do it just right. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause or congratulations. No one thanked her or praised her. No one noticed a thing. But, like a leaf falling from a tree, she just let go. In the space of letting go, she let it all be. A small smile came over her face and a light breeze blew through her and the sun and the moon shone forevermore. I share these words with you to remind you that life doesn't always have to feel so hard, so calculated, so controlled. For you are worthy and you are all of the things you see in others and yearn to be. You have nothing to prove. And for those who don't see your value or who don't celebrate you in the way that you deserve, these aren't your people. You don't need to do all you can to avoid rejection. For the only one who can ever truly reject you is you. So, if like me, you have spent years trying to prove yourself, trying to mould yourself into the person you thought they wanted you to be, trying to be good enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, thin enough, you have nothing to prove. And now, it is time to let go. To let go of the fear and the judgments. To let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around your head. To let go of the committee of indecision. For it is now time to rest and to remind yourself that you are worthy of all your heart desires. And to trust that everything will work out for you exactly as it's meant to. Thank you so much for listening to Unspoken with me, Dr. Clodagh Campbell, the wellness psychologist. Be sure to like, subscribe and follow me at the wellness psychologist on Instagram if you'd like to hear more. If you identified with this topic, make sure to check out the show notes where I have listed related resources for you. I hope you find them beneficial. Little Light is an Irish jewellery brand founded by sisters who, through their own difficult experiences, realized that life is full of ups and downs and that it is really important to honor our whole stories not just certain chapters each piece of little light jewelry comes with a poem to evoke emotion these poems are composed about topics such as friendship love and adventure but also thoughtfully include the unexpected challenges of loss hurt and heartache Little Light believes that it's important to give each other the space and grace to move through our pain as it's only in our deepest acceptance of what is 
that we can begin to start the ongoing process of healing. Little light is the perfect gift for yourself or for your loved one. Evoke emotion with your gift giving with Little Light and use code UNSPOKEN for 15% off site-wide.